Republicans' dispute with Biden over the rule, which was anticipated. Specifically, the rule says large banks can only charge fees covering the costs of an overdraft, not more. The rule also requires greater disclosures from banks about how fees are charged. An AP analysis of public data suggests the biggest U.S. banks generate about $8 billion in annual revenue from overdraft fees. The new rule, if it survives political and legal challenges, is set to go into effect in the fall of 2025. And in weather today, in Washington, D.C., it is 28 degrees under cloudy skies, with snow showers expected tonight. From WPFW News in Washington, I'm Sue Goodwin. A foreman came in with a tray of maple bars and said, Bad news. You've all been exposed to lead. Blood tests after lunch. Have a maple bar. Hi, and welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. Elise Bryant is away this week. On today's show, producer Susan Eisenberg talks with Hillary Peach. Hillary is a writer, recording artist, and a producer of unusual art projects. For 20 years, she also worked as a transient welder, traveling across Canada and the United States, working in pulp mills, chemical plants, refineries, and generating stations. In 2022, she released a memoir about this time, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. And today's segment includes several readings from the book. I would never take a woman with me out on the high iron. Lawrence told me that at Harmac while we were partnered together on the blowdown tank. Joe Jenks is a 25-year veteran of the international folk circuit, an award-winning songwriter and celebrated vocalist. Joe is a member of AFM Local 1000, the North American Traveling Musicians Union. On today's installment of our Story Behind the Song series, Joe tells us how he came to write his labor classic, Rise as One. It was a victory for working people. And my job as a cultural worker in that moment was to sing some songs of victory and songs of struggle from other labor events through history, throughout the 20th century. And on Labor History in 2. The year was 1915. On this date, the most popular labor song in the United States was completed in Chicago. For some reason, my frosty Canadian Union brothers don't enjoy the boomers who come up from the southern states as much as I do. It's the accent, Dave said. I don't trust the way they talk. Writer and recording artist Hillary Peach worked for 20 years as a transient welder, traveling across Canada and the United States, working in pulp mills, chemical plants, refineries, and generating stations. Last year, she released a memoir, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. Our producer, Susan Eisenberg, spoke to Hillary recently about her work and her art. Susan is a poet, visual artist, and oral historian. She was among the first women who became licensed journey-level electricians in the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and worked 15 years on Boston-area construction sites. She's the poetry editor for Labor, Studies in Working Class History, a journal published by Duke University Press. I'm really excited to be here today with Hilary Peach and talking about her new memoir, Thick Skin, Field Notes from a Sister in the Brotherhood. Hillary, could you um, just tell us a bit about the tra- work trajectory that you cover in this memoir of your work life? Sure. Hi, Susan. It's great Hi. to see you and hear yeah. you and be on the radio with you. I'm very excited about this. The trajectory of the book is that it covers from my first travel job as a field Boilermaker. I was a pressure welder for the Boilermakers Union for 20 years. 
And it starts, well, it starts out in the shipyard before I joined the field local. And then it covers the time I spent traveling back and forth across the United States and Canada and working at home in British Columbia. And it ends in 2018 when I left the field to become an inspector. Your memoir sort of covers a lot of your work life in the trades. When did you come in and to what trade did you come in and how did that shift? And a little bit about learning the craft. I started in the mid-1990s, and you and I have talked about it a little bit. It was a time when there wasn't a lot of proactive support for women and minorities in the trades. So I was a bit of a, a white elephant, I guess. I went to welding school in 1996. I had done an arts degree at the University in Vancouver and graduated and didn't really know what I was going to do and thought I would try out the trades. So I started in 1996. I worked in a shop for a few years. And then I had the opportunity to take a shipbuilding, ship fabrication course program and start welding on some aluminum catamaran ferries that they were building on the West Coast at that time. So I worked for a couple of years doing that and then ended up in the shipyards in Victoria in the dry dock doing repairs and alterations on cruise ships, diving ships, tankers, barges, just about anything that they can put in the dry dock. It's the biggest dry dock on the West Coast. And I liked it a lot, but I was always working outside. And then I started travel carting with the Boilermakers Union, the field local that worked more in plants and industrial settings. And I really liked that. And I ended up uh, spending most of my career traveling around to various chemical plants, pulp mills, refineries, wherever they needed pressure welders. And I was welding pressure inside confined spaces. That's what Boilermakers, that's the scope of our work, as opposed to pipe fitters who do all of the pressure joints on the outside of the confined space. We do the work on the inside. I have a friend who's a Boilermaker who made a video for her mother of from inside of a boiler to show her what she did because it was so such different work that her mother wasn't at all familiar with. Um, so you're from British Columbia in the Vancouver area, but where did you travel to and what was that like? There was a, there was something going on in the early 2000s where Canada and the United States were working together a lot more in terms of being able to facilitate cross-border work opportunities. So if there was a local in the United States somewhere that was short of pressure welders, they could put a call out on what they called the most, it was stood for something, M-O-S-T, the hotline. And any local in North America could respond to that. So if there was a local in Canada that had the manpower, then they would uh, say, yes, we have this many pressure welders, we have this many fitters um, available to you. And if they could put the order together, then a group would go down from that local in Canada to location in the United States. And then about 10 years later, it was happening in the reverse direction. But the first place I went to was Montana. I did um, four big jobs in the States. I was in Montana, Pennsylvania. I went to Wallula, Washington, Washington State, and Michigan, just outside of Detroit, all in different kinds of facilities too. And each of them was about six weeks, I guess, in duration. Were people surprised to see a woman arriving and what some of that response was? It, I think it's different now. I, I'm, You and I are both pretty involved in the tradeswomen communities in our various regions. And now there's big national conferences. It seems like there's a lot more. Um, it's become more mainstream or uh, commonplace to see women on a work site. But at that time, uh, there just wasn't anybody. And I can't remember, let's see, in Michigan, there was there was a local four, which was the Navajo local, New Mexico, Arizona, and I think Hawaii had tied in with them somehow. But they were an all American Indian local and groups of folks would come out. And there was a couple of women that were traveling with that group that I ran into cross paths with a few times. So that was very interesting. But otherwise, I can't remember meeting another woman boilermaker in the field in the United States. I knew a few in my local and in Canada. Hello, powerful people. This is Seth Harris from the Power at Work blog. We're proud to be a part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. It has more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country 
and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. That's all one word, laborradionetwork.org. Thanks. You're listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. We're talking with writer and recording artist Hilary Peach, who worked for 20 years as a transient welder traveling across Canada and the United States. Last year, she released a memoir, Thick Skin Field Notes, from a sister in the Brotherhood. Here's producer Susan Eisenberg. So what I, one thing that's wonderful about this memoir is that the length of the chapters, I think, really makes it work well for if you bring it with you to work, you could read one or two at your lunch break or coffee break, depending on how much time you get. So this is a story about working home mill, Harmac, which was just outside of Nanaimo, BC, near where I used to live. And my partner was an iron worker. It's called, I Wouldn't Take You With Me. I would never take a woman with me out on the high iron. Lawrence told me that at Harmac while we were partnered together on the blowdown tank. He was an iron worker who worked with us as a permit, then later joined as a member. He was an excellent welder and seldom spoke. He was slight and wiry and nimble as a cat. He always wore those heelless ironworker boots with his cuffs tucked and taped up in a black hoodie with the hood pulled well forward, shielding his face. His face, when you could see it, was always dirty like a child's. He just blurted it out. He finished burning a rod, lifted his welding helmet and delivered his line. I would never take a woman with me out on the high iron. It was the only time he'd ever spoken to me, a statement of fact. He wanted me to know, I suppose, that that's where he drew the line. I knew what he meant. If you're an iron worker welding structural steel, walking the I-beams 20 or 30 or 40 stories up, you need to be able to trust your partner. You don't want to be out there with just anyone. You want to know that your partner doesn't need looking after, isn't going to walk out to the end of a beam and freeze. Lawrence had worked the high iron for years as a younger man before fall protection was mandatory. He didn't have to brag. The fact that he was still alive said enough. Fortunately, we were not working on a 40-story building, walking out on nine-inch I-beams. We were welding out the transition of the top of the new blowdown tank, which is only about 25 feet up, and we could get to the top by climbing a few levels of scaffold. The tank was shaped roughly like a giant acorn with sides that sloped inwards from the top down. At the top of the wall sections was the transition weld where the slope roof joined the tank. I was welding while standing on the scaffold and Lawrence was crouched on top of the tank welding a seam that couldn't be reached from the platform. I could tell it wasn't personal. He just wanted me to know he'd weld jet rod with me, but walking the high iron was out. That's okay, Lawrence, I said, because there are lots of places where I wouldn't take you either, so we're about even. We finished the shift in silence. The next day, the sky was clear and blue, and we climbed up on the tank and started welding. Jet rod is a fast-moving fill rod with a heavy flux and high deposition rate. I hadn't used it before. The rods were long and awkward, and you had to move quickly. Lawrence had welded miles of it in his life, and when I asked, he gave me a quick lesson. It completely changed the way that I was handling it, and my welding was suddenly much better than the day before. Then out of nowhere, he spoke. Where? Where what? Where wouldn't you take me? You said yesterday there were places. Oh, I said, well, I wouldn't take you to the opera. I wouldn't go to the opera, he said. That's why I wouldn't take you. I don't think you'd like it. At first coffee, we climbed back up on the tank. Where else? Lawrence asked. Where else what? Where else wouldn't you take me? He seemed genuinely interested. He knew he wouldn't want to be with me 20 stories in the air, but he hadn't considered that I might also have no-go zones for him. I wouldn't take you to the ballet, I said. Lawrence scowled. I wouldn't go to the ballet. I know. We welded a while longer. Where else? I took off my helmet, unsnapped my respirator, and started cleaning it with some alcohol wipes. 
I wouldn't take you to a library because you'd be bored. I wouldn't take you to a night school cooking class or yoga. You're shy. Do you go to those things? He asked. Yes, we welded. I would not take you to an art gallery, I volunteered, where there was, say, a retrospective of French Impressionist paintings. But I would take you to a sculpture garden. What's a sculpture garden? He asked. It's a park or a public place, uh, like a garden, and there are giant sculptures displayed, sometimes by one artist and sometimes different ones. They can be bronze or steel or stone, whatever. You just walk around the park and look at sculptures. There's one in Central Park in New York. Lawrence studied me for a few seconds. I'd go to that, he said. I nodded. They're cool. That's how the rest of the week played out. We would well then discuss the places where I would or would not take him. And he would tell me whether or not I would take you to a dog show. I'd go to a dog show. I would take you on a bird count where you spend the day looking at birds and recording what you saw. I'd do that. I wouldn't take you ice skating. I wouldn't take you with me to try on shoes. I would take you to ride a miniature train. I would not take you on a Ferris wheel. While we were at work, the world became neatly divided into places where Lawrence would go with me and places where he would not. I would take you to a punk rock show, I said, on our third day on the tank, but only one of the old style ones in an abandoned warehouse or somewhere, not a nightclub. I'd go to that. I wouldn't take you to a jazz improv show or a new music concert. I don't think I'd like that. I'd take you to a poetry reading, I said, but only if it was in a bar, not a cafe. Lawrence looked doubtful. In a really crummy part of town, I added, and I wouldn't make you stay for the whole thing. A bar, he asked. 20 minutes tops, then you're free to go. I'd go to that, he said decisively, if it was in a bar. I wouldn't take you to a fancy dinner party where your place setting had more than two forks, but I would take you to a Moroccan restaurant. Lawrence paused, frowned. I don't know about that, he said. Seriously, I asked, this is the deal breaker? I thought for sure it would have been the poetry reading. That's Africa, right? He asked. I nodded, North Africa, on the Mediterranean. What's the food like? He asked. It's great, I said. There's um, lamb, or you can order a big, hot, delicious stew with pieces of chicken in it and vegetables with spices and preserved lemons and olives. Sometimes it's cooked in this clay chimney-shaped dish called a tagine, and it comes out really tender and flavorful. After a long moment, Lawrence nodded. I would try that, he said. On the fourth day, we finished the tank and our seam was going to be x-rayed overnight. Lawrence, who hardly ever spoke to anyone, was waiting for me at the end of the shift outside of the trailer. We had started walking out of the mill to the gate together, a couple of guys were watching us from the smoking area. Where are you two lovebirds headed off to? One of them called out. But before I could answer, Lawrence turned around and called back. We're going to a dog show in a sculpture garden, dinner at a Moroccan restaurant, and maybe a poetry reading after in a punk rock bar. He kept walking, <laughs> smiling a little. I shrugged. I just let him decide. I said, it's easier that way. That's so wonderful. <laughs> I'm curious, did you take notes while you were working or keep a journal or how would you remember? Yeah, I took it, write I, it while you were at work or after work or both. I tried to keep a journal, but often we would just be so tired, you know, that it's the last thing I want to do is actually rehash everything that's happened in the last 10 hours or 12 hours. So I would kind of write things down when the spirit moved me, or if anything really crazy happened, I found I'd write it down. Or if I was in some kind of conflict or an encounter with another person that I thought I might have to speak to the superintendent or somebody about like something where I thought I needed a record, I wrote everything down verbatim. Consequently, when I went to look at this years later, all of the arguments I have down word for word. And then the better, the kind of better times or the more pastoral or poetic or the sort of lovely times 
are just impressions that, you know, are memories coming out of memories. But I was kicking myself at first thinking, gee, I wish I'd written down more. I should have kept a notebook where I wrote everything down every day. But really, the things that I wanted to put in the book would kind of rise to the surface. And and that was a really interesting lesson that the experiences that resonated or that lodged in my memory for some reason or that I felt had some were, were somehow important or somehow said something more than the experience itself, they would come up as I was working on the narrative. So yeah, it was a mix. It was a mix, mm-hmm. I'd say. I sometimes think of it as big letters of just, they're just phrases or things people said that just stay with me that are sort of the beginning of writing. But I can remember writing on pieces of sheetrock on the job, like when I just had to put something down. I don't know what what a welder would write on, but. Yeah, I've written things on pieces of pipe, on skin casing, on pieces of angle iron. But then, of course, we all got phones. You know, about 15 years into my career, people started showing up with phones. And now you can write things down on your phone or you can take pictures of things. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I just think of these yeah phrases that that I said or people what were said to me that just hang on that I kind of carry well, it's, it's a larger the image, right it's it's you work often you work from the image there's an, you you experience an image that will tap into that source life and I know that language but it can be an audio image it can be a sound or a turn of phrase or or it can be a visual image, right? And then it kind of opens up that whole world or you suddenly remember that whole day or that whole experience or that whole crane lift or whatever it was. Could you talk maybe about just the decision to even to write a memoir, which is a really a big commitment, large project. And I know you're a really multi-talented artist. You're, I think I first heard of you when you sent me a CD called Suitcase Local that's music and spoken word. And we met in person at the in San Luis Obispo, um, California at a at Rivet, a, a visual arts exhibition, exhibition. of yeah. uh, an yeah. exhibition of tradeswomen who did visual arts. So you do a whole range of things. What made you decide to do memoir, which is a long project? And you know, so many tradeswomen mentioned that to me. I'm gonna write this my a book of the story and i say well, that's really like a big project you might start with something smaller first i'll say one of the things that got me going on it was reading your book we'll call you if we need you which was a life-changing book for me i have to say i i give it to everybody like i've given it to so many tradeswomen and i i mention it to all the tradeswomen that i meet and i talk to a lot now so when I got to go to San Luis Obispo, I took some blacksmithing sculptures with me to the visual art show. And then we, you and I both did a reading and uh, a little writing workshop, poetry workshop. But I was so excited to meet you. I was so totally excited. And I was saying to Kate Braid and other women that we know in common, I said, I'm meeting Susan Eisenberg. <laughs> and I was really impressed because you rented a Mustang. <laughs> you were ripping around town in a big Mustang, if you recall. Yeah. That was yeah, pretty great. And I drove right up to Half Moon Bay too. Yeah, it was great. That's, that's <laughs> they got it for me. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was fun. That was totally amazing. Um, what got me going writing the memoir, memoir was that I I had written a book of poems. I'd been writing poetry kind of my whole life, like 35 years or something, and then put it all together. I'd never really submitted anything, put it all together and submitted it to my favorite local small press or a small literary publisher in Vancouver, reputable, respectable literary press, Anvil Publishing, they're called, and didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. Finally, I get a a missive from the publisher asking me to go out for coffee. And I thought, oh, this is where he sits me down and tells me, it's we like your manuscript, but it doesn't fit our catalog right now. Like I, I figured this was how they rejected people. I'd never submitted anything, so I didn't know what how it worked. And so we went out for coffee. We talked for a while. And then he said to me, uh, Brian is his name, Brian Kaufman of Anvil Press. He said, would you like to publish a book, meaning the book of poetry? And I said, well, yeah, I really want to publish a book. And I was very excited. And then he said, do you want to do two books? And I said, what do you mean do I want to do two books? And he said, why don't you write a memoir about being a boilermaker? And this came completely out of left field. It had never even crossed my mind. But he was sitting there with two contracts 
one for the poetry book and one for the memoir. And there were actual advances attached to them, which is very unusual for a small publisher with a poetry contract. And so I was just kind of carried away in the moment. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it all. Like, let's do all the things. And I signed both contracts. And then that was it. I was contracted to write a memoir. And I had no idea how to do it. And I was supposed to get a draft to him in a year. It took me three years. And actually, it took until I had left the Boilermakers and gotten some distance on that whole world before I could really put it together. I just had so much resistance to talking about things. And of course, in the unions, there's a lot of confidentiality. And there's good side and a bad side to that, right? There's the cone of what I call a cone of silence, but there's the whole attitude of what happens in the union stays in the union. And, you know, we keep it in the house is what they used to say, which can be good. But it also means that there are you feel really limited about what you can and can't say outside of that institution. So I struggled with that. Then after I was out of the union and out of boilermaking, I gained some perspective and I was able to kind of make these decisions around what I wanted to talk about. So so one of the things I decided was that I would only tell the stories where I was actually there. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have any hearsay in the book. I mean, there's great stories in the Boilermakers Union, legends that I could write about, but I decided that those weren't my stories to tell and mm-hmm. that I was only going to tell the ones where I was actually there and I was going to stick um, as close to the truth as I was able to. That helped. Kind of putting guidelines in place like that helped. One of the things I find fascinating in the book, there's just not that much written about traveling as a construction worker and especially as a woman. Could you tell people a little bit what a work camp is and what that means to being a job that's at a work camp? And then I realized your prose poem that's in, in this book about one of the work camps and the dining hall there is coming out any moment in the issue of labor. And let me just give a plug for that. So labor is a journal, a quarterly journal, Laucha, Labor and Working Class History Association. And I have the privilege to be the poetry editor. And so I'm very excited to be publishing this piece of yours. If there are people who have things they want to send to me for to for consideration for that, it should go to labor at georgetown.edu with poetry in the subject line. In Canada anyway, and I don't know if there are still camps to this at the same scale in the United States, but in, in Canada, on the West Coast in BC, at the wherever there are these mill towns. There are towns that have their main industry is a pulp mill. And often there is a camp attached to the pulp mill where there'll be like a skeleton crew, core labor crew living in the camp. But when there's a shutdown twice a year or three times a year and all the trades come in to do the big maintenance shutdown so that then the camp fills up with all of these trades workers who are traveling from all over doing that circuit. So there'll be insulators, electricians, carpenters, brickies, boilermakers, pipe fitters, everybody in the same camp and everyone eats at the dining hall. In BC, they're either kind of crummily built in the 1970s and never really upgraded buildings or else at co-trailers, like aging, rotting at co-trailers. At the oil sands in northern Alberta, which is a huge, huge area that has started with nine core sites, and now there's a lot more than that. But they were building state-of-the-art work camps to try to attract workers because the weather and the working environment is so difficult and challenging. It was really hard to get people to go there. And once they were there, it was really hard to get them to stay. So they found that by building better and better camps, people would stay. But I always ended up working in the nastier, older camps when I was up there. There's a recreation facility and a gym usually and like a canteen where you can buy stuff and a big dining hall. And then everybody gets their little room, which is about eight feet by 10 feet. There's a little single cot and a closet and a sink. And that's, no, there isn't a sink. There's just like a towel rack, but no sink. I never understood that. And then the bathrooms and showers are down the hall. It was an eye opener to me when I realized that Noralta, which is the larger kind of more desirable camp to be in at Syncrude in Fort McMurray, was designed by the person who designed a lot of the federal prisons in the United States. 
they had taken one of those designs. So there's kind of a octagonal core hub with hallways going off from it and different wings or neighborhoods. And I realized this is how these companies are now housing people in work camps and now people in retirement homes. They're using this institutional model for all kinds of ways of housing people. That was something I pondered a lot was that we were living in a place that was designed after a prison. My room at Mildred Lake faced the Mainson Crude Refinery since the 1970s when the plant and the camp were first constructed. The refinery had been expanding outwards every year, butting up to the work camp, then surrounding it. Out the small window, I could see the parking lot, the chain link fence, then refinery infrastructure, flare stacks, furnaces, hydrogen plants, towers, piping and tanks, all the way to the horizon. At night, the room was still lit from huge sodium lights, but a woman I met in the bathroom offered to give me some tinfoil to cover it over. I was working nights, so tinfoil was essential for daytime sleeping. On both shifts, the constant rumble and occasional explosions, sirens and garbled PA announcements prevented any serious sleep. Anyhow, the top floor apparently was one of the better bunkhouses to be in since it didn't sit on the ground where toxic sludge, sewage and mold would accumulate under the building. Since it was mostly bull cooks and other permanent camp employees in my wing, they had a routine and stuck to the rules. They kept the common areas clean and didn't party, wore slippers in the hall and were careful not to slam their doors. Three of the women I had met there had been there for several years and had no other residences. Their rooms were full of plants, pictures of children and grandchildren, little shelving units with keepsakes. They had made their own curtains, had rugs on the floor and soft duvets on the narrow beds. One woman had a 50 gallon aquarium in her tiny cell with large well-fed goldfish languidly swimming in circles. It was the year Martha Stewart was sent to prison and I followed the story by reading the newspapers in the lunchroom or buying them at the commissary. I collected articles about her time in the federal jail in West Virginia and how well she was adapting, collecting wild dandelion greens in the prison yard to add to salads. I taped her picture to the <laughs> wall of my room, Martha leading a yoga class for the incarcerated. She and several inmates were lying on their backs, legs up the wall for a short time. I thought of her as a kind of spiritual guide. One thing camp is good for is developing a routine. Everything happens at the same time, day after day. And when all the other comforts are absent, you can lean into that predictability, one small part of a big machine. The canteen opens at 3.30 p.m. By five, you'd better be on the bus, arriving at the gate at 5.30 for a 6 p.m. start. I used to head to the canteen early before everyone had gone through the line and coughed on all the food. The kitchen and canteen were in a low-slung building on the outskirts of the residential blocks and also housed a games room and the commissary, which sold cigarettes, gum, chocolate bars, dirty magazines, potato chips, razors, toothbrushes, and towels. Anything you might need but forgot to bring. At the canteen indoor was a security guard who checked your ID and told you to take your hat off. My journal entry from February of 2004 said this. The lineup stretches down the hall and nearly out the door, and you wonder how many people have washed their hands as you pick up your tray and scan the array of leathery meats, lumpy chicken, soft, luminous vegetables, glutinous pastas, concealing sauces, thick white gravies, premixed potatoes, as well as those in silver jackets, glistening hot dogs, sausages, sauerkraut, and pierogies, always pierogies, even at breakfast. And you see your apprentice, that big stroppy Ukrainian kid, happily ordering the Lebanese cook to load on more pierogies, more sour cream, another whole plateful. He sets down next to two steaks and three sausages and a huge cube of lasagna. He's 20, good natured, his head filled with cars and boobs and video games. He pours himself four glasses of tang and two of milk from the machine and plows happily through the crowd to his friends. They use big spoons and forks and load in pork chops, bread, corn, shepherd's pie, jello, linguine, mac and cheese, fish sticks, chocolate cake, and argue about transmissions with their mouths full. 
A thousand guys, more or less, like this, eating. They never get enough and they will never run out. Video cameras in the corners take it all in and relay it back to central control. No one is worried about these guys. This is what they're supposed to do. They can't eat too much of this shiny, free food. Fuel the machine, fill it up and send it to sleep, then back to the cold and the mud in the morning, then throw money at it, girls on the weekend living the dream. It's the guys who don't eat at all that the cameras are worried about. The occasional wiry, suspicious guys that frown and pick and push things around. Like the guy who won't eat pork, or the ones who don't eat anything from the steam table, or the ones who take soup and leave it there, or the ones who scrape the sauce off their cutlets and grimace at what's underneath, or only eat porridge in the mornings. How the Ukrainian apprentice loves the mornings. He wakes up dreaming of bacon and sausages and steak and fried eggs, toast, pancakes, syrup, butter, cheese bread, and a plate of pierogies. It's the ones who only eat from the salad bar, vegetarian discontents, obviously political, troublemakers, rabble-rousers, or maybe they're sick and won't make it through the week, threatening to take a leave or go on compo, get cancer, drag up and go home. Or maybe they're drinking too much, can't keep anything down. These are the ones to worry about. The girls are bad too, fussy, complaining about the taste, the texture, the temperature, say it's fattening. Get out there and go to work, girl. Forget the taste. At least there's plenty of it. Millions of people in the world would be happy to have one shot at that steam table, one chance at the wall of desserts where you can take as many pieces of pie as you want. Hell, the Boilermakers shut down Kitimat one year because there was no pie in the canteen. Learn the way things work. Get your priorities straight. Thank you so much, Hillary, for reading these wonderful passages from the skin and talking to us about it. Thanks, Susan. Hey, this is Lena from the Work Stoppage Podcast. We're a proud part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, more than 200 labor radio and podcast shows across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where the people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. It is we who serve the lunches, we who sweep the floors, we who drive the buses with your children after school, we keep the buildings warm in winter and cool when it's hot, and we will not let you pay us for the full. Joe Jenks is a 25-year veteran of the international folk circuit and award-winning songwriter and a celebrated vocalist. Joe is a member of AFM Local 1000, the North American Traveling Musicians Union. For today's installment of our Story Behind the Song series, I talked with Joe about how he came to write his labor classic, Rise as One. In 2001, I'm dragged kicking and screaming from Seattle, this hub of progressive engagement, and dropped in Cleveland, Ohio, because of various life choices and marital commitments. And I was grumpy about it. I left claw marks all the way across the country. But I landed in a neighborhood, the near west side of Cleveland, which now many people refer to as Ohio City. And when I landed in this particular neighborhood in Cleveland, it was all hands on deck. Everybody who lived there was working to keep it from sliding downhill in the way that many other neighborhoods in Cleveland had over the previous decades. And they were holding the ground and saying, no, this is a place where our families have been for generations. And this is a place we want to hold for future generations. One of the first people that I met there was a woman named Judy Gallo. Judy introduced me to a whole bunch of people that were involved in a school strike that had happened out in Jefferson Village in Ashtabula County, Ohio, heading toward Erie, Pennsylvania from Cleveland. And there were 96, I think maybe 98 workers in this union. They were 
school support workers, uh, often referred to as classified workers, uh, Ohio Association of Public School Employees. And they had asked for, in negotiations, a very small increase in pay, a small increase in healthcare benefits. Most of these people were working quarter and half-time jobs. A small number of them were working full-time jobs. Lunchroom workers, groundskeepers, janitorial staff, school security, some of the clerical staff in the school, some of the teaching assistants, uh, educational assistants, things like that. Anyway, their ask was not big. The school board in Jefferson Village spent, I think, half a million dollars to hire a union-busting law firm to come in and tear down the union. And by the time I got onto the story, this had all happened. It was all over. And they brought me and they hired me as a musician to play for a victory party that was happening at the home of one of the people who had been involved in helping organize this. But the workers banded together and went out on strike. And most of the workers were not activists. They were not particularly political, but they recognized when they were getting a raw deal and they decided collectively that they wanted to stand up to this. They were successful. They were so good at the community organizing aspect of this labor action that they forced the school board back into negotiations. They got what they had been asking for and they publicly shamed the school board for behaving like idiots. I have always believed that anger is a spark plug in the engine of change, but the fuel for that engine has to be love. You have to believe in the world that you are trying to create. You have to believe in the reality that you're trying to bring forward, the union you're trying to build, the neighborhood you're trying to save. Um, And that work is done by love. And when you look at the history of civil rights activism in this country, you see a community and civil rights leaders who dedicated themselves as a way of life to continually working for justice, continuing that march forward uh, for social justice. And um, I think what I witnessed in that neighborhood was that notion at work. Um, And what I witnessed then when I was invited out of the neighborhood, I lived in Cleveland into another town in Northern Ohio in order to um, just bear witness and hear their story and sing some labor songs to help them connect with the idea that they were part of a movement, that this victory was not just a victory for these 98 workers in this one local in Jefferson Village, Ohio. It was a victory for the labor movement. It was a victory for working people. And my job as a cultural worker in that moment was to sing some songs of victory and songs of struggle from other labor events through history, throughout the 20th century, to help these workers see that what they were doing in the early aughts in Northern Ohio was connected to a bigger picture politically, culturally. And that was an extraordinary thing when I connected the dots, when I realized for myself what my role was as a singer-songwriter, as a folk singer in that moment, was to help leave the breadcrumb trail through music so that they could find the movement, so that they could find connection with people outside of their own community. And so many other unions in the region did that for them as well, helped them connect to a history of organizing And I had not intended to write a song about their courage and their bravery and their victory. I just went over there to play some songs and listen to their stories. But when I got there, I realized that this, I had stubbed my toe on a phenomenal story. That the the part of me that is also a little bit a journalist within my songwriting really wanted to tell and tell with integrity. And I went home with all of these ideas in my head. I I like model trains, HO scale trains, and I had a little loop of track set up on the floor in my living room at the time. And, and I had that running slow and the sound of the metal wheels of the model trains going over the joints and the rails. In miniature, it's very much like a, a, a regular freight train. You, there's a rhythm to it, and there was a cadence to the model train gently running around the track. And I sat there picking on my guitar, and all of a sudden the music to Rise as One just emerged. The melody happened, and the way that I play it with a melody that's integrated 
into some walking bass lines and pedal tones and the whole thing began to emerge musically. And I remembered something that one of the workers had said to me. She said, we just went back down to the school board and we said, we're never going to give up, we're never going to give in, and we're never going to go away, so you may as well talk to us. Or an increase in our wage. Tell us that the township can't afford to pay the bill. But you found half a million dollars from within those very coffers to try and break the union's back and break our will. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, well, she just wrote the first half of a chorus for me. We will never give up. We will never give up. And we'll never, ever go away. To which I added, we will build a brand new future for our daughters and our sons. We will work till all workers rise as one. And there was just one of those goosebump moments as a writer when I'm sitting there on my couch late that night with the train going around in a circle and I'm picking on the guitar and I stumble on the whole of this chorus with the melody and the cadence and the ideas. And then I was off and running. Never there's a need, we always go the extra mile. God knows we do it for the love, not for the pain. When we dare to raise our voice, in solidarity we stand with every other worker all the world around. And that was a point that I wanted to make. And mostly it's their story and their experience. But they reflected back to me when I went out there for that victory party, this aha moment that they had as workers when they suddenly realized they weren't just standing up for themselves, they were standing up for other working people. And that gave them a sense of pride and a sense of purpose beyond themselves. And for me as a songwriter, writing these stories that aren't really about me, they're really not my story, they're other people's stories. There's a place for the personal, there's a place for the direct experience of the world and the interpretation of it through art. But there's also a place and a needed place for going into the world with the notion of being a journalist and documentarian and turning that camera lens outward and putting the focus on other people's stories and using our skills to uplift those stories in the ways in which they embolden and empower and affirm all of us. Uh, and so that really was my mission with that song in particular. But it turned out to be the beginning of a whole genre within my own work as a writer and composer of choosing also to be a journalist and merge my art with the sense of research that a good journalist would use, the verifying with multiple sources, going back and doing second or third interviews if needed in order to really clarify particular points and make sure that I'm getting it right. Because I realized writing that song that I got stumped into the third verse and uh, it just wasn't coming together no matter what I tried. I called up a couple of the people who'd been involved in the strike, talked with them. I had gotten a few of the facts not quite right. And it's like the song wouldn't let me finish it until I finished my homework, got the story right, and therefore grabbed the story correctly in the song. You know, it, it is as if the muse herself was saying, no, 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 the story is too important to fudge the details, get it right. And I think necessarily when one turns a big and complex story into something as distilled as a song, as stances of poetry, that we have ever so slightly fictionalized that story. But it's only a couple of degrees off from precise truth, and therefore the heart of the story remains. And Howard Zinn talks about this in his prologue to A People's History of the United States. He talks about the notion that books have given us the history of kings and conquerors and captains of industry and the people who paid for the history books to be written. But it's songs and poetry that have preserved for us the history of the people who made those societies function. And I think that song was really important in my life as an artist and as an organizer through the arts, as a person who was a cultural worker within the labor movement and other social justice communities, 
because that song taught me as a writer the level of integrity that was required in order to get it right and the possible impact once you get it right. But that song then became an anthem for classified workers in many parts of the country in the wake of that song being disseminated and put into the world, partly through the Labor Heritage Foundation, through the Great Labor Arts Exchange, through another festival that existed out west, the Western Workers Festival. I had the opportunity to connect with other classified workers and classified workers unions and got invitations to go play at big annual union conferences and places, mostly just to sing that one song. And I would advocate for having them also let me teach a workshop on the history of music and the labor movements and try and connect each of these unions to the history of cultural work within the movement. But that one song became an anthem for so many people in so many different places. And it taught me as an artist that when we do it right, we get to help other people find the soundtrack they need for a particular moment in their life or their movement or their activism or their work. And just as the story was not about us, ultimately the song isn't about us either. We're a messenger, we've helped convey an idea, but the idea is more important than the person who came up with it. At the end of the day, there are probably a lot of people who know that song and sing that song and have no notion of who I am or what I what my role was in bringing that story forward. And I'm fine with that. I would rather the music be alive in the world and at work in the world, especially those kinds of songs. Uh, that's really the story behind Rise is One. It, it came out of a nuts and bolts grassroots labor campaign in a tiny village in northern Ohio. And their story and the courage of those workers and their commitment to dignity in the workplace for all of their peers uh, led them to do some extraordinary things for a very small but mighty local of the Ohio Public School Employees Union. And the ripple effect of that was really consequential. And it was my privilege to witness it and share that witnessing through song. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this date in labor history, the year was 1915. On this date, the most popular labor song in the United States was completed in Chicago. Ralph Chaplin, an industrial workers of the world activist, artist and writer, was in town for a demonstration against hunger. He finished writing Solidarity Forever, a song he had started working on the year before at a miners' strike in West Virginia. Set to the popular tune, John Brown's Body, or the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the song became the anthem of the U.S. labor movement. Solidarity Forever continued continues to be a staple during countless union meetings, on picket lines, and May Day and Labor Day events throughout the nation. Also on this day in labor history, the year was 1963. On this day, President John F. Kennedy signed Executive Order 10988, which recognized the right of federal employees to join a union. The 1935 Wagner Act, which had ensured the right to organize a union, had excluded federal employees from that protection. Although they won the right to organize, under Kennedy's order, federal employees were denied the ability to go on strike. Even with this limitation, this executive order is considered very important in U.S. labor history. Not only did it allow federal employees to unionize, it also helped light a spark for public sector unionism at the state level. Today, approximately half of all union workers are in the public sector. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run There can be no greater power anywhere beneath the sun Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one But the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show for more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. We will never give up. We will never give in. And we'll never, ever go away. We will build a...
That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you've got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, drop us a note, info at laborheritage.org. Our music today included the live version of Rise as One by Joe Jenks. We also had an excerpt from Pennsylvania, a montage video poem by Hillary Peach. We've got links to both in the podcast show notes. The Labor Radio Power Hour is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. Today's show is produced by me, Chris Garlock, and engineered by Mike Nisella and Kalia Chapman. Right here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Your station for jazz and justice. Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement. And we'll never, ever go away. Build a brand new future. We will build a brand new future for our daughters and our sons. We will work till all workers rise as WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York. I'm Sue Goodwin. Here are some headlines. Pakistan today launched airstrikes in Iran in retaliation for Iranian airstrikes in Pakistan on Tuesday. Today's strikes in Iran killed at least nine people. Both strikes appeared to target separatists in the Baluchian region. Iran and Pakistan have accused one another of harboring the separatists who seek to carve out an independent state using territory from both countries. The region has seen low-scale militant activity for decades. A separatist-armed group, the Baluch Liberation Army, said the Pakistani strikes, quote, martyred innocent Baluchian people, close quote. An Iranian regional office said those killed include four children. A Pakistani spokesperson said China, which has deep economic ties with Iran and Pakistan, has offered to mediate between the two countries. The U.S. conducted yet another round of airstrikes into Yemen yesterday, hitting what it said were 14 Houthi missiles being prepared for launch. Yesterday's strikes marked the fourth U.S. attack on the Houthis in less than a week. A statement from U.S. Central Command claimed U.S. forces were acting in self-defense. Earlier yesterday, a drone launched from Yemen hit a U.S.-owned commercial ship in the Gulf of Aden, causing damage but no injuries. The U.S. yesterday added the Houthi rebel movement back to a list of terrorist groups in an effort to cut off funding and weapons. A Houthi spokesperson said attacks on commercial ships heading to Israel would continue. The Houthis have portrayed their attacks as taken in solidarity with besieged Palestinians in Gaza. In domestic news, a Department of Justice review of the police response to the mass shooting in 2022 at a Uvalde, Texas elementary school found critical failures by law enforcement before, during, and after the attack. Nineteen children and two teachers were killed in the shooting at Robb Elementary School. The review, which was released today, said the biggest mistake officers made that day was failing to treat the shooter as an active shooter and waiting far too long to engage. Police waited more than 70 minutes in school hallways before confronting and killing the lone gunman. In a statement accompanying the report, Attorney General Merrick Garland said, quote, The victims and survivors of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School deserved better. Close quote. The Senate is expected to pass legislation today to fund the government through early March and prevent a partial government shutdown. It must be passed by the House as well. 
The legislation is intended to give Congress more time to pass spending bills totaling $1.66 trillion to fund the government through the rest of the fiscal year, which ends on September 30th. If Republicans and Democrats can't reach a deal, funding for federal transportation programs, housing and food plans, and other resources will expire tomorrow. The deadline for the Departments of Health and Human Services, Commerce, Labor, State, and Defense comes two weeks.